How many of you know the story of Daniel in the fiery furnace? Okay, well, apparently you don't because um, Daniel never went to the fiery furnace. That was, that was a trick question, just to keep you on your toes. Now, it was Daniel's, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, whose story that we're going to look at today. Not appearing in this story, Daniel. Um, so... And some of you may be thinking, you know, as soon as you hear that, oh, oh great, the fiery furnace again. Oh, how many times did we go over that in Sunday school? And, and maybe we did. But uh, I'd like us to shuffle a little closer to the furnace, so to speak, uh, feel the heat a little bit more, maybe singe your eyebrows a little, and ha- have burned into our hearts some of the teaching that I think this story has to us that maybe we missed in Sunday school. Growing up in church, it's, it's easy to get blasé around God, isn't it? It's just kind of old hat. Well, here we, you know, we come to church, we, um, we listen to his word, and we, we sing, we pray, and, and uh, we forget that we are coming before a living God who describes himself as a fiery furnace. A consuming fire is how God describes himself. And, and we forget that. We're, it's all just, oh, another Sunday, here we go. But we come before a living God. So uh, that's why I say, well, maybe we'll get our eyebrows singed and uh, we may feel the heat a little more this morning. Author Annie Dillard puts it this way. She says, churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. This, this, dates, this dates her, by the way, but it's madness for ladies to wear straw hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may someday wake and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. What a wonderful turn of phrase. So let's put aside the fact that you may have heard this story before. Let's strap ourselves in, in case the sleeping God awakes and see what he has for us. And we're going to begin... With a pop quiz. Don't you just love? Rather than just telling you the story, you know, most of you have heard this before, so I'm just going to quiz you on it. And uh, kids, if you're not familiar with the story, this is the first test, or maybe the only test you'll ever take where it's okay to cheat. So you can just ask mom or dad, what's the answer to that? And then you can put your hand up, and then you'll get the candy. So, so here's, the, here's the first question. The, um, the story takes place when Israel is in exile. Exile. Now, what does exile mean? Yes. Exile or leave. Well, close. I'll give you a couple for that one. Oh, you get one as well. <laughs> Sorry about that. Exile. What does it mean? If you're in exile, yes. You can't go back to your own country. You've been banished. Correct. Well done. Here you go. I'm not going to risk it. Okay, next question. Where were they in exile? Where does this story take place? Anybody know? Babylon is the correct answer. Well done. Oh, sorry. There's an extra one. Uh, Okay, this is a multiple choice. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Were they common laborers? Were they public officials? Or were they nobility? What, what, what you know, strata of society did they come from? Yes. Common laborers. Nice try. You've whittled it down, but you get a candy anyway. 
Yes. Nobility. They were nobility. Okay, well done. I spared you all by not throwing them at you. Okay, so they were, in Israel, they were some of the, uh, you know, they were like the, uh, the court. I'm trying to have a voice here. They were the, um, the, the Senate. They're among the, you know, the, the who's who in society. They were nobility. All right. How long, this is another multiple choice, how long were they trained? Because you can't show up in a foreign country. You have to learn the language, you have to learn the customs, and if they're going to be given a position, because they're being trained to hold a position, how long were they trained? I still make this multiple choice. Was it one, three, five, or seven years they spent in training? Let's look over this side for a hand. Yes. How seven is the wrong answer. But since this isn't a real quiz, you get candy anyway. Uh, yes, five is also the wrong answer. We're whittling it down, making it really easy for whoever gets answers, <laughs> answers next. Where was that? Over here. Oh, almost, sorry, that's twice. Wow, I'm really sorry. Yes, three is the correct answer. Okay, I don't know if I can get this. We'll see how far we can get it. Three was the correct answer. Okay, now they're going to be in service of the king. Who was the king of Babylon at the time? Over this side. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar. Wow. Hands straight up. Well done. There you go. You share it with your brother. Maybe. Um, this is the next question. I had to throw one in there that was impossible. What does the, what does the name Nebuchadnezzar mean? Ooh, we have somebody at the back. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> For being a smart aleck, there you go. <clears throat> it means Nebo protect the crown because Nebo was the Babylonian god of literature and science. Nebo protect the crown. See, that's who he was named after. All right, and he made an idol, covered it with gold. How tall was the idol that Nebuchadnezzar made? Let's have somebody over this side, over here. How tall was the idol? Just to make a guess. I'll give it within 10 feet and I'll give it to you. Yes. How high? 25 feet. Who said 25 feet? No, no, no. What was it? 100. Well, that's close, but almost. You're almost there. Yes. 75. 75. Ooh. Yep. 64. Well, that's specific. All right. 60 cubits is the correct answer, which is 90 feet. 60 cubits. Do you know what a cubit is, you young people? Tell me what a cubit is. Hold up a cubit. You've all got one. Uh, this is a cubit here, which is about a foot and a half. So, so actually, for you younger children, that, that would be less than a cubit because you're not fully grown yet. All right. So he set up this 90-foot idol. And when were the people supposed to fall down and worship? At what point? What was supposed to happen? Yes. When the music played, I'm not going to throw them, it's getting crazy. Here we go. When the music played, well done. And one last question. Why didn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall down and worship? Uh, way at the back over here. Because they were not going to worship any other gods. Good job. All right. Excuse me. Talk amongst yourselves. There you go. All right. They worship the one true God. 
Okay, well, this, that's the end of the quiz. By the way, I made myself a little podium out of cardboard this morning. Look at this. But it was too tall, so now I have to rest it on the drawer. Because <laughs> I had to guess how high this table was. Anyway, so we'll stop the quiz there, but uh, let's cover the rest of the story. <clears throat> having been appointed by the king, having done their three years training, uh, some of the king's counselors got jealous of these three young men. And they wanted rid of them. So they rat them out to the king and inform him that they are not doing what he said. They are not bowing down and worshipping the idol. Which is it's interesting, isn't it? These are three young men, all right? They're, they're really, they're talented, they're educated. And there's all kinds of things that they could have gotten into trouble for. They, maybe they've been, maybe they're pinching things from the treasury. They could have been, uh, gotten in trouble for saying something bad against the king. Or for complaining how bad Babylon was. Or about the food. Or who knows what. But they get in trouble for the most ordinary plain thing. They, their prayer life. Because they will not bow down and worship this idol. So Nebuchadnezzar is told that there are people in his kingdom who are not obeying his orders. And he is furious when he hears this. He does not expect his subjects to disobey him. So he has the three of them brought in before him to find out if it's true, because he's not going to lop their head off without checking, all right? because they've just spent three years, they've invested three years of time and money to educate these three men. So, okay, let's find out if what's being told is true. So he brings them in, and he says, um, uh, tells them what he's been told, but then he warns them and says, that if they give him the wrong answer, they're going to see the inside of a fiery furnace. So think carefully, guys, he says. And then he tacks on the end, and if you go into the furnace, what God will be able to rescue you then? Hmm. I put the hmm in, but that's really basically what he said. I love, love, love how they respond. They do it with such dignity. No wonder they're nobility. You can almost hear the English accent as they say this. <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar, they say. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was a reasonable man. He said, okay, that sounds fair enough. You can go. No, no, he didn't. That's not what he did. Um, you can check this out in Daniel 3, by the way. I forgot to, I don't think I mentioned that. Daniel chapter 3 is where you find this story. If he was furious before, he goes ballistic now. He just can't believe that having been faced with the, you know, the challenge of what they're doing, that they won't even buckle with the king's threat of throwing them into the furnace. So he, uh, he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal. I don't even know how they took the temperature of a furnace, let's be honest. But basically, he wanted it to be so hot it was scary, if it wasn't scary enough already. And the furnace is, and he, and he, I don't know why, but he gets the th some of the toughest soldiers, the strongest soldiers, to bind the three young men. And they're fully clothed in their turbans or whatever else they had. And they, they bind them up and throw them into this seven times hotter than normal furnace. And it's so hot at this point that to get close enough to throw them in, the soldiers get killed. They die of heat because that's how intense it is. 
And I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar kind of sitting there on his throne, just going, finally, you know, defy me, will you? Well, any sense of satisfaction that he had was short-lived because as he looked into the furnace, he suddenly leapt to his feet and asks his advisors a question which really he knows the answer to. But he said, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they're like, yes. He says, well, look, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Unable to believe what he's seeing, he yells through the flames, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And what happened next? Everybody present will be talking about till the day they died. They'd be telling their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren because to their utmost astonishment, the three men emerged from the furnace and the fire hasn't burned them at all. Not a single hair has curled or been singed. Their robes are not scorched, although the, bond, the bonds have burned off. And they don't even smell of smoke. Nothing. As though they just come from a walk in the park. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful kings on earth at the time, when he can find his voice, this is what he says. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. You kind of have this dark streak in him, really. You know, it's not like, you know, you can never say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but if you do, you're going to be cut into pieces and your house is going to be destroyed. I'm like, okay. So, anyway. Anyway, having tried to kill them, he then just gives them a promotion and a pay raise. And that's really the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a story we teach our children in Sunday school. We present it as a shining example of faith under fire. No pun intended. Uh, And of course, that is what it is. It is a shining example of faith under fire. But this may have come as a surprise to you. It is not a shining example of faith under fire simply because they were saved from the furnace. That is not why they are a shining example. You see, the outcome of this story is so amazing, we confuse the miracle that happens with the faith they display. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have remained shining examples of faith, even if they died in the furnace. We may never have heard of them, unfortunately, because it's the miracle that makes them famous, but it is not the miracle that makes them champions of faith. They win that title by what they say to Nebuchadnezzar. When they say this, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. That is the shining example of faith, not the miracle that happens afterwards. It's these words, their willingness to stand and defy this king is what puts them in the faith hall of fame. Their confidence in their unseen God and his kingdom 
is so strong. Disobeying him isn't an option. And they remain calm and composed in the face of death because God has their heart. God has their heart. And they're not willing to give that to anybody else. I don't care what you threaten us with, what you can do to us. Maybe you threaten to chop us into little pieces like you just said to the others. Uh, But no, no, my heart belongs to God and I'm not going to give it to you or to this structure that you've just put up. That's the faith that we have to avoid confusing with the miracle. Because if God did not come through with the miracle, and he may not, at this point they don't know, if he doesn't come through, then we're, gonna, we're not going to give you our hearts either way. We do a very similar thing, I think, when it comes to prayer, this confusion thing. We ask God to do something, and if by, uh, or to our utter amazement, he does it, he responds to a prayer, we, uh, we are led to believe that prayer is powerful. You know, this is a confusion of terms again. You can go into any bookshop in this land, and you can find books on the power of prayer. But prayer is not powerful. Prayer is not powerful. God is powerful, and all prayer does is invite the power of God into his world to do a work. We've confused the terms if we make prayer powerful. Think of it this way. Suppose you had never been in a car before. You'd never, you know, cars were entirely new. And I, and I said, well, I have one. Would you like to come for a ride with me after the service? And you say, oh, yes, please, because you're excited. And, um, and so you sit in the front seat, and, and I start the engine, and off we go. And you notice really very, very quickly that whenever I push down on this pedal on the floor, the car just seems to shoot forward. And so after a while, you stop and you say, uh, what's that thing that you're on the floor there, that pedal? And I say, oh, that's the accelerator. And, and then you say, that's a really powerful accelerator you got there. I'm like, no, 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 no. no the, the accelerator's not powerful. It's the engine that's powerful. All the accelerator's doing is releasing the power of engine into the wheels. That's what's going on here. And I think we do a, a, a disservice. We confuse our terms when we say prayer is powerful. No, no, God is powerful. What prayer is doing is inviting the power of God to do a work in his world that he may not choose to do if he were not invited. That's what's going on with prayer, confusion of terms. If prayer was powerful, we'd all do what I remember seeing uh, some new age followers do. When I was back in England, I forget when it was, probably 15, 20 years ago, New Age was kind of a talk of the town and these New Ages. And it was a whole BBC program on the New Age. And New Agers, at least in this program, believed in the power of prayer. So this is what they did. They had a prayer room. And they had benches around the sides and they had a table in the middle. And they built uh, a box uh, out of wood. And they drilled a hole and put a piece of plastic PVC out the front. And then they sprayed it black and they put a switch, like a light switch, on the back. It wasn't attached to anything, but that was their prayer cannon. All right? They called it their prayer cannon. And people, the, these people would come into the room, and they would, they would log when they came in, and they would log when they left, and they would sit there, and they would think positive thoughts and positive feelings and good thoughts into this prayer cannon. And so they would log hours and hours and hours of positiveness into this prayer cannon, 
And then when there was a crisis in the world, you can't make this stuff up. When there was a crisis in the world, they would find out what direction it was in, and they would turn their prayer cannon in the direction of the crisis, the tsunami, the earthquake, and then they would flick a switch that was attached to nothing, and then they would release so many hours of positive thoughts and feelings and prayers that they had put into the cannon. And then they turned it off again when they're however many hours they wanted. If prayer was powerful, we'd all have one of those. All right? We'd all have one of those. But it isn't. Prayer isn't powerful on its own. It's who we're praying to that has the power to do something about what we're inviting him to do. And if I confuse those terms, then I'm getting myself um, muddled up. Exactly the same as what's happening here, to get back to the story. It was not the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego that saved them. It was not their faith that saved them. God was the one who saved them. It was their faith that enabled them to stand and very calmly defy the command of, at the time, the most powerful person on earth. That was their faith. Now, in case you're sitting there thinking I'm splitting theological hairs, here's a question for you. If the miracle that they experienced was directly related to their faith, whose fault would it be if the miracle didn't happen? Whose fault would it be? Theirs. Exactly. So if God did nothing, they're to blame because they didn't have enough faith. That's the dilemma we put ourselves in if we get some of these things confused. When I first began to grow as a believer, uh, I grew up going to church, but when I was 18, God got a hold of my life in a new way, and I was introduced to um, the evangelical movement as, at the same time as the charismatic movement. They were both, both impacting my life in various ways. And I heard preachers from the charismatic movement telling me that faith was all I needed for my Christian journey. I shouldn't be going to the doctor if I was sick. I just needed to pray and have faith that God would heal me. That's all I needed to do. And uh, if I wanted to be rich, I just needed to send them money or give them money, and then God would bless me, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing into my lap. Well, I, I didn't have any money really, so I did the, the faith thing, but and I was a young believer. I didn't want to miss out on anything that God had for me. So I'm like, okay, God, you know, this, I'm, I'm going to do an experiment here. Now, I was, into, I was playing a lot of sports at the time. I had left school, I was working, and I played um, for a local soccer team, and I played for a local basketball team. So, you know, soccer practice, basketball practice, and then games. I was four, four nights a week minimum out doing sports, and I had athlete's foot. And so I made my athlete's foot my miracle healing faith experiment. I, would, I didn't coin it in those terms. I was just like, okay, I'm going to trust God. I believed God could. I'd heard miracles of things that God had done. People had been healed. So I, I decided I was going to pray in faith that God would heal my athlete's foot. I believed he could. I just uh, I, I, I trusted that he would. I had faith that he would. Well, I prayed almost daily for a year and a half, and it didn't go away. At which point, I went out and bought some cream, and it cleared up in a week. <laughs> now, <laughs> I learned some valuable lessons from that little faith experiment. First, 
I learned that God may be the healer, but he can and does use whatever means he likes for healing. And if every good gift comes from him, medicine is a good gift. And so there's no reason not to access the medical community to deal with our issues. If we do not have access to medical communities, like we're out in, some, in the middle of nowhere on the mission field, I've heard, you know where most miracles I've heard of happened? Where those things are not accessible. Because then, if God doesn't show up, you know, we're all sunk. But he does show up. But if I have a doctor I can go to, or a chemist I can get some cream, why does God have to fix my athlete's foot? The need isn't there. So that's the first thing I learned. The medicine is a gift. Secondly, I learned that God is not at my beck and call. To do whatever I ask him to do, whether I ask him in faith or not, if, I, because if he does whatever I want, whenever I want it done... I am the master, and he is the servant. And that is completely round the wrong way. And thirdly, making my Christian life entirely dependent on the power of my faith was a monumental mistake. Because then if I pray for something and nothing happens, it's all my fault. If I'm sick and I don't get healed, it's my fault. It's lack of faith. If I don't get that job, it's my fault. It's lack of faith. If the girl I'm in love with marries someone else, it's my fault. It was lack of faith. That is not faith in God. That is faith in me. And that is a terrible idea. So our faith needs to have the object, the right object. Our God is able to heal. He is able to give me that job. He's able to save that relationship. But if he doesn't, and he may not... He still has my heart. My allegiance is still with him. Because it's not, this is not about, if you don't do this, that's it, we're done. No, no. This is, I'm coming to you and asking for something, but I can't demand. And then maybe there's other means that God will use to accomplish the same thing. But he has my heart. And then I won't be tempted to bow down and serve lesser gods, the gods of health or wealth or fame or power or popularity or pride or accomplishment or achievement all the things that we would like to turn to to try and prop ourselves up. Now, I know I'm belaboring the point, but it's such an important concept to grasp that I felt it was necessary to do that. And we know for a fact God doesn't always come through with the miracle because he spelled it out for us in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the faith chapter that we've been going through. Heroes of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. And we have the big guns, if you like, you know, the Moses and, and the Abrahams. But then towards the tail end of that chapter, he's like, well, I haven't got time to go over them all. There are other, other people who received, uh, did see miracles. Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, it says, who were protected from lions and fires. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of get a nod in there. Lions and fires and sword thrusts. But then he says this. He said, others braved abuse and whips, and yes, chains, and dungeons. We have stories of those who were stoned, who were sawn in two, who were murdered in cold blood, stories of vagrants wandering the earth in animal skins, homeless, friendless, powerless, of whom the world was not worthy. By including that last little group of people who did not see the miracle, my God is able, but if he doesn't, and he didn't with them, because they are included in this list, our faith uh, is revealed that it's, it has to be in God 
and not on whether the miracle shows up or otherwise. Because they got included. They're in this champions of faith list, even though their miracle never materialized. Every one of them is being commended for their unwavering faith, regardless. And the truth is, in light of what God has already done for all of us, the, the miracle that he's already performed, which is just astounding, really, by sending his son to die in our place, to take our sin so we could be forgiven, granting us eternal life. Um, all of that is so staggering. It's, such, it's a miracle beyond any parting of sea and beyond uh, uh, any saving from fire or the mouths of lions. God himself came to this planet and took a, a, a punishment that we just celebrated that was for me, that was individually for you as well. That is the, the biggest miracle of all. If you can categorize miracles, that's a doozy. All right? It's... And it, in some ways, if God never did anything for us ever again, we would have no cause for complaint. Because look at what he has done for us. Does that not demand my heart? And of course, that is what Christ demands. To believe in Christ is to say, my heart is fully yours. And so, although we, we should be praying, and we can pray for miracles, I'm not trying to say, don't pray for miracles. I'm praying for one right now myself. But, and he is able. But if he doesn't, Christ still has my heart. Christ still has my heart. That's the message that we get from these three young men. The cross is the ultimate proof of his love and affection. And it demands the same kind of allegiance from us that is demonstrated by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, one of the things I love about Christianity is that even though, for me, okay, that's settled, that issue. Miracle separate from the faith, all right? I don't want to confuse those two. I am still allowed to wrestle with the underlying question that kicks up whenever any kind of furnace uh, confronts me. The question that Jesus cries from the cross. The question, why? Why? Why is this happening to me? And why is this happening now? Why is God allowing this to happen? Why doesn't he show up with the miracle every time? And how come they got their miracle and I didn't? We're given the freedom to ask that question. Even Jesus in Gethsemane, in a sense, you are able to make this cup pass for me, but if you don't, thy will be... This, you, know, you see this repeated over and over in the scriptures. But when we're faced with our own furnace of life, whatever that thing may be, Let's be honest, this is what kicks up. Why? Now, I'm not God's PR rep, so obviously I don't have a definitive answer, but I'd like to share with you what I have found helpful in my own life when I found myself asking why in the face of pain or hardship or suffering. And it involves our understanding of the will of God. You see, sickness and pain and death, um, none of these were part of God's original plan for his world. We treat them all as normal because they're just a part of everyday life for us. But they're not normal as far as God is concerned. There's nothing normal about death, nothing normal about being sick. They're not what God intended. They're not his intentional will for this world. Oh, yes, I intend for you to get sick. 
I intended for you to die. No. There's a lot of confusion, too, here about the will of God. It's a term used very loosely, in fact. We face a sickness or a tragedy, and because God did nothing to prevent it, didn't intervene, we say, well, it must have been his will, as though he wanted it to happen, or worse, intended it to. I think that is a gross misunderstanding of God's will. Leslie Weatherhead puts it this way. He says, I have a good friend whose dearly loved wife recently died. When she was dead, he said, well, I must just accept it. It is the will of God. But he himself is a doctor, and for weeks he has been fighting for her life. He had used all the devices of modern science to fight the disease. Was he all that time fighting against the will of God? Yet surely we cannot have it both ways. The woman's recovery and the woman's death cannot equally be the will of God in the sense of being his intention. And of course, it can't. You see, the problem comes is that we, use, we say the will of God as a blanket term to cover all kinds of things. And actually, there are three different terms we should be using. There is his intentional will, there is his permissive will, and there is his ultimate will. God's intentional will refers to the way he intended things to be from the beginning, in the garden, where it was perfect. In fact, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, um, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, acceptable, and perfect will. That was creation. That was Eden. Good, acceptable, and perfect. So if there's anything in my life or your life that is not good or acceptable or perfect, God did not intend that to be there. He did not intend anything evil or painful or unpleasant. What kind of God would he be if through divine intention he poured misery and frustration and bereavement and disappointment and calamity on, on his beloved children and then just asked them to look up through their tears and say, thy will be done? What kind of God would that be? No. We have to break with the idea that everything that happens is the will of God in the sense of it being his intention. So if something that happens to us is not his intention and it's bad, well then, why is it happening? And the answer is because God didn't intend it. Why is that? Because he also has a permissive will. And his permissive will allows things to cut across his intentional will. His intention is for me to live a life that is fully, um, fully given over to him. But his permissive will allows me to fluctuate in that. You see, one of the miracles uh, of creation, perhaps the greatest miracle of creation, is that God's created something other than himself, namely you and me. Right? He created, if, with modern uh, artificial intelligence, we program computers to do things. He, God could have made us like an artificial intelligence where we just do what he says, yes, hallelujah, you know. But he didn't. He made something. He, this, is, this is it. He took clay and he gave the clay the ability to say to the potter, get your hands off me. That's the freedom. We call it free will. That's what God gave to us in creation. He created something other than himself. And he did so as far as I can understand, because for a genuine relationship to exist, there has to, be, has to be a free choice to give my heart to him. In the same way as if we fall in love with somebody, you know, you can't make somebody love you. You can only, 
You can only give them your heart and hope they don't trample all over it. Uh, so, but genuine relationship requires both parties can offer themselves. God offers himself to us continually, and he's looking for us to do the same. Free will is the thing that makes that possible. But free will creates circumstances that can cut across God's intentional will for our lives. God doesn't want me to kill people in my car, but free will means I can drink and drive and do just that. And God will not stop me from doing that. It means I can cheat on my wife. It means I can hate my neighbor. It means I can steal from my workplace. And God won't stop me because he's given me the ability. But every time I do something like that, I am cutting across his intention for me which is good, acceptable, and perfect. I'm breaking the commands that he's given to help me live a good, acceptable, and perfect life. And I'm, I'm, I'm just cutting across it left, right, and center. And then creating circumstances in other people's lives that, uh, you know, bringing misery upon them as well. God's permissive will means he allows what he doesn't intend. Think of it this way. Suppose it's my intention. We have a, our 10-month-old granddaughter living with us right now. She's a joy. She's just beginning to crawl, and she's kind of pulled herself up a little bit. She's not quite walking yet. Her name is Lucy. Now imagine if little Lucy, 10-month-old, let's make her 11 months, a month down the line, she's starting to, to teeter around on her little legs, and, and it's our intention for her to learn to walk. Of course it is. And so we let her get up, and she does this, and then she falls over. Fortunately, most babies fall backwards, probably because of the weight of their diaper. Um, but anyway, they fall backwards. But now, it's, our intention was not that she fell over, right? If I intended her to fall over, I could push her over real easy. No, no, no. My permissive will allows her to fall because my intentional will is for her to learn to walk, right? So the permissive will allows, God allows things to happen. He doesn't intend, but because he's given us freedom, then uh, they happen. His permissive will complicates our lives, but it's also the thing that makes a genuine relationship with God possible in the first place. Anyway, alongside his intentional and his permissive will, God also has an ultimate will. And this refers to the plans and purposes that God is going to accomplish Regardless, he, from the beginning of creation, creation till its end, he has got some plans and purposes that he is working out. And we can trace that through the scriptures, you know, the progress of redemption as to where we see what he's doing to restore what, uh, what sin um, and what his permissive will allowed, the ability of us to mess things up. But there are certain things that regardless of what we do, we can't do anything about. They will not be thwarted, all right? We just celebrated communion, which is something we're only going to do until Christ returns, until he comes again is part of the wording of that. Christ is coming again. That's part of God's ultimate will for this planet. He is going to come back. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be a part of his church. It's unavoidable. It's a truth that nothing we do or say or any government or anything, nothing's going to stop that from happening. Those who have believed in his name will be raised to everlasting life. Evil will be judged. Every tear will be wiped away. Pain and suffering will no longer be here. These are things that God is going to do. And the governments of the world, you know, they, they come and go and they, they make policies and they blow each other up and other things. That does not stop God's ultimate will from happening. It's like children playing on a mountainside 
There's a stream running down and it's making its way to the sea. And maybe they try, they get rocks and stones and sticks and they try and dam that stream. But, and maybe they can slow it for a while, but it comes over the top or it goes around. It's going to reach the sea. Well, the kingdoms, the greatest kingdoms on earth are just those little children playing in that stream. God's will is going to be accomplished. And they think they're thwarting it. No, no, they're not. So where does that leave us regarding the fiery furnace? It leaves us with the knowledge that as we stand alongside Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the furnace of life, which for each of us sometimes gets heated three, five, seven times hotter than normal, none of the suffering and the heartache that we face is sent to us by God. He didn't intend those things to happen because his will is good, acceptable, and perfect. He is able he is able to change our circumstances. He is able to give us a job. He is able to provide us with a husband or a wife. He is able to heal our diseases. He is able to take away our depression. He is able to give us the child that we so desperately desire. He is able to get us out of the fix that we find ourselves in, perhaps through our own poor choices. He is able to prevent us from being laid off. He is able to help us pass those exams. But if he doesn't, if he doesn't, what he has already done for us is more than we ever deserve. And we can say along with Job, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. He has my heart. I will give it to no other. And that, I think, is the abiding lesson of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to close with a poem by Adrian Plass because it speaks into this, who has my heart, and am I really going to follow God through the end It's called, When I Became a Christian. He says, when I became a Christian, I said, Lord, now fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, your body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, I think. I think, amen, amen, I think. I think I say amen. I'm not completely sure. Can we just go through that again? You say my body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Well, yeah. That sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But Lord, there must be other ways to follow you. I said, I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said, you could put up with sneers and scorn and spit. Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, a bit. A bit, amen, amen, a bit. A a bit, I say, amen. I'm not entirely sure. Can we just run through that again? You say I could put up with sneers and also scorn and spit. Well, yes, I've made my mind up. I say amen a bit. Well, I sat back and thought a while and tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says that Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. So do you want to follow me? I said, amen, tomorrow. Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. I need to get it clear. Can I just run through that again? You say, I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Yeah, I I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you, not half of you, but every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, amen. I quit. I'm very sorry, Lord. I said, I'd like to follow you, but I just don't think religion's a manly thing to do. He said, forget religion then. 
and think about my son. Tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need? Are you man enough to go? Are you man enough to care for those whom no one wants to know? Are you man enough to say the thing that people hate to hear? To battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end? The moment of betrayal by the kisses of a friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue and man enough to cry? When nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Man enough to take the pain and wear it like a crown. Man enough to love the world and turn it upside down. Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Amen, 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 amen. I said, oh Lord, I'm frightened. But I also said, amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there are all manner of things on this earth that we're afraid of. Furnaces that come our way that that terrify us. And we do ask why. But I pray that in the asking, we would also remember the lesson of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Knowing that you are able There is nothing which is impossible with our God. Nothing. You are able. But if you don't, may we stand firm, trusting in what Christ has already done for us, the miracle of life we've received. May our hearts remain true and our lives speak the truth as we hold on to that. And whether the world sees or understands or not, May we be found worthy of the one who gave everything so that we could one day stand before you and be among that number from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So whatever we are facing currently or will face this week, maybe it's just a medium hot furnace, maybe it's a blazing seven times hotter than normal, Lord, We give you our hearts afresh and thank you that in your strength we will stand firm. Hear us, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name.